0: This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. Good morning.
1: It's good to see you today. My name is Chris. I'm the pastor here at Christian Chapel. If you're a guest, we're thrilled that you're with us. If it's your first time back in a while, welcome back. Uh, We are still kind of figuring out how exactly we're supposed to interact with each other right now. I know many of you probably feel that tension at different times, too. I have... um, like half-heartedly but almost seriously joked about we're going to start doing stickers at Christian Chapel, Uh, like green means give me a hug, Uh, yellow means six feet away, and red means no eye contact, Uh, you know, just so, so so then we just all know, because I honestly, I don't know what to do when I meet someone new now. It's like, are we, are we, I don't, I don't know, should I wave, then I'm rude, do I shake hands, then I'm rude, do I hug, then you think I'm like typhoid Mary, I don't really know what to do, so I just want you all to know, no matter how awkward your interactions might have been this morning, we are glad that you're here, and we are thankful that you're here, and we're continuing to pray uh, for an end to this virus, for an end to everything associated with that, and thank you for joining us in those prayers Today at Christian Chapel, um, we want to stop and uh, kind of speaking of awkward, jump into some awkward conversations. Um, I know we have all been aware of what's going on in our city, what's going on in our nation, uh, all around the world. uh, Since the the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis, there have been protests, marches uh, across our nation here in our city. And so I, I thought it would be good for us today to stop and just hear the stories of some of our brothers and sisters. Uh, but I, I don't want you to get the wrong idea at all. We are, we are not here this morning just to have a, a conversation about race in our nation. Uh, we're not here to talk about our duty as citizens um, or, or any of that kind of stuff. What we're really focusing on is we are the church. And so as the church, we believe that the gospel is the ultimate inclusive statement from God. That differences do not cause division in the body of Christ. But we can embrace diversity, we can celebrate diversity. In fact, that's what we're called to. And, and so, before I have some of my, my friends come and share with us this morning, I just want to give you two um, kind of scriptural foundations for what we're talking about this morning. The first comes from Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. So, if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, this is the Apostle John's vision. Uh, in chapter 7, of what heaven will be like. And he says there in Revelation 7, 9, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And so John is making it clear to us that, that just in case we haven't got it through the teachings of Jesus, through the writings of the, the leaders of the church, it, kind of we're going to close out the scriptures here with this vision of where we're all going to end. Right? The, the path that we're all walking ends with us worshiping with every people, nation, language, and tribe around the throne. Not divided, but all of us there together. And so if this is our end goal, then we want it to be our right now goal as well. If this is our forever experience, then we want it to be our right now experience. And, and earlier this morning, Pastor Chris led us in the Lord's Prayer. It's a, a reminder to us. Jesus tells us we are to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and so when it when it comes to division in the body of christ the will of god is that there is not any right that we are all united we are all joined together and so this morning we're going to have an opportunity to hear the stories of some of our our members and my hope as we hear those is that we uh understand that the gospel implications for our relationships that cross the lines of race, that cross the lines of culture, of ethnicity, of nationality, of language, of anything else. But, but this morning especially, we're going to talk about uh, race and racism, discrimination, bigotry. They're going to tell us their stories. And, and I, I just want to say to, to those of us who live in the majority culture in our nation and in our world, um, it is important for us when we hear those stories to not quickly brush them aside. Right? And, and so this morning, you're going to hear from people who've grown up uh, all over the United States in, in all different decades. And there can be a temptation to think, oh, well, you know, I'm sorry that happened to you, but you're fine now. So let's just move on. Right? But, but we don't want to do that. In fact, what we want to do, and, and I'm going to encourage you to do this morning, as you hear their story, I want you to, to place yourself in it. I want you to find your place in it, and I want you to really listen to the Holy Spirit for how you and I together can be part of changing those stories so that 30 or 40 years from now, when my kids are leading in churches and your kids are leading in churches, they're not still having to have the exact same conversation that we're having this morning. Right? We are praying for real progress and real peace to be experienced in the body of Christ. So I'm going to invite uh, my friends to come up and introduce them to you. Uh, This morning we are inviting Clifton Talbert, Stephanie Jackson, Joanna Hasse, Kareem Katia, and Sean Terrell to come and share with us. Will you help me welcome them as they come? There you go. All right, so um, they are all very humble people and won't brag about themselves much, so I'm going to brag about them a lot, because I I want you to know who's talking to you this morning. So um, we'll start right here next to me. This is Pastor Kareem. He's our our youth pastor here at Christian Chapel. Uh, Kareem has been part of Christian Chapel for about three months now. Uh, His first Sunday was the last Sunday we met in person on March 15th. So it was kind of like, hey, welcome to church. We'll see you in nine weeks. Um, But it's been great. Kareem is married to Bianca. They have two cute little kids that you'll see running around. Kareem's a graduate of Southeastern University down in uh, Lakeland, Florida, and served as a high school science teacher and high school basketball coach before he joined us here Uh, Next to Kareem is Clifton Talbert. Uh, Many of you, if you've been around Christian Chapel a long time, you know Clifton well. Uh, Clifton has been part of Christian Chapel. He wouldn't tell me exactly how many years, but he said it's over 40. Um, So uh, he's a graduate of Oral Roberts University, uh, did his graduate studies at the Southern Methodist Graduate School of Banking. Clifton's the author of over 40 books. He is a Pulitzer Prize-nominated author, a sought-after speaker. He's lectured at Harvard, at the United States Air Force Academy, spoken to NATO, the United Nations, Library of Congress, the United States Capitol, to the Supreme Court. Um, I could keep going, but we do need to get to other people as well, but uh, Clifton is, is just a wonderful gift, not just to Christian Chapel, not just to Tulsa, uh, but to our nation and to leaders all around the world when it comes to uh, matters of diversity of ethics and character. And so we are, we're thrilled to have, have Clifton here to share with us today. Next to Clifton is Sean Terrell. Sean is a Tulsa police officer. He is uh, married to Claudia. is a father of five, including two brand new twins. Uh, so, so if Sean falls asleep halfway through. Uh, you'll, you'll understand why. Um, and So Sean's a graduate of Emporia State University in Kansas. He recently finished his master's degree at Dallas Theological Seminary as well, and as I said earlier, works for the Tulsa Police Department. He's also started a ministry called uh, Blue Light Ministries that uh, presents the gospel to law enforcement officers. Next to Sean is Stephanie Jackson. Stephanie is married to Benny and is a mom to Carrington. Uh, She's been a part of Christian Chapel for about 12 years now. She's a graduate of uh, both Oklahoma State and the University of Central Oklahoma, because why get one bachelor's when you can get two, right? (laughs) Yes. And then she wasn't done there. She went on to get a master's from Southern Nazarene. She went on to graduate uh, from law school at TU. A couple years ago, Stephanie retired after 20 years on the Tulsa Police Department, retired as a sergeant, and then in retirement decided to become a lawyer. And so (laughs) is, is currently practicing law as well, and so we're thrilled to have Stephanie sharing with us today. And then next to Stephanie is Joanna Shrewsbury. Joanna is a mother of three, she's a graduate of the University of Missouri, she had a a broadcast journalism major. Um, She currently works as a debate and English teacher at Edison High School, but is transitioning to Crossover Prep, uh, a private school in North Tulsa where she will help them start Crossover Prep Girls Academy and serve as the principal beginning this fall. So we're really excited for her there. Prior to education, and and I believe prior to children, Joanna was a uh, newscaster, and so was on stations in Missouri, Virginia, uh, was nominated for an Emmy at one of those stops along the way. So um, all of that to say, uh, the least impressive person up here this morning is me. So we are, we're thrilled, but, but really, in, in all seriousness, all of uh, each of these individuals I consider a personal friend, they have shared their stories with me, um, each of them in one or two or three or ten specific ways have helped me understand, uh, you know, kind of the, the dynamics of, of race and just, just things that, that I never knew. And they have spoken those. They have gently corrected me at times. Uh, Clifton and I have had some talks over the years where he's told me, hey, you should not say that that way. Uh, that's, that's, not, that's not good. Sean has encouraged me of, hey, it's, you know, it's bad, but we're making progress. Kareem's helped me understand the, the place of, of my voice at times where I think, well, like everybody knows what I think. I don't need to say it again. Um, and even this week, he was reminding me of like, hey, you love your wife, but you still tell her all the time. So it's, it's good, good to do that. Joanna, a couple years ago, was telling me how, how meaningful it was for her and her family Uh, To see someone on stage who had the same color of skin that they did and the value that added to them. Stephanie and Sean and I both had a lot of talks over the years about uh, the role of law enforcement and the the way that all of that plays out in all of these conversations. And and so I appreciate the wisdom, the grace of each one of them. And it's not really rehearsed today. I sent them a few questions that we're going to talk through. But for the most part, I want you to have the experience that I get of just listening to the wisdom that God has put of of people in our lives, and really just we're going to see how it goes and and see where we end. So uh, why don't we, we'll just start here with Kareem. Can you guys just give us a real quick kind of where you grew up, quick background, and uh, then we'll get going.
2: Okay. Yeah, so uh, I grew up in South Florida, um, and uh, it's very diverse. uh, It's an extreme melting pot. Um, I would consider it the southern New York um, in a way, that's, that's what I would compare it to. Um, so, uh, I, like you said, I graduated from Southeastern University. Um, I went to, uh, I, I did some youth pastoring, I, I coached for seven years, uh, was a high school teacher for about three years, and um,
3: yeah, yeah, that's a little bit about me yeah, real quick. Perfect, Clifton? I grew up a long time ago, as the pastor sort of indicated, <laughs> the senior representative up here. I grew up in the Mississippi Delta. Um, through high school, and from there I took a train and headed to another place to discover a life that hopefully would be different than the one I had known all of my life.
4: Awesome. Sean? So I was born in Oklahoma City, um, moved to Ames, Iowa when I was a baby. Both my parents went to Iowa State. Um, And after they graduated, we moved to Emporia, Kansas, so that's where I went to high school, um, played college basketball in Missouri, then came back after a year graduated from Emporia State, um, and then we moved here to Tulsa eight years ago. Okay.
5: Stephanie? So I actually grew up in Oklahoma City uh, on the northeast side, which would be um, kind of the east side of Oklahoma City. And years ago, as Cliff would say, but a little closer to this side of the world, the 90s. I'm a 90s kid. <laughs> So my parents divorced before I was two and a half and um, my stepfather and my mother were married about 15 years and for that entire time I grew up as a child survivor of domestic violence. So my life was pretty much Oklahoma City Police Department every day um, and moving probably 1.3 times a year as my aunt used to love the joke about. Okay. Joanna?
0: I grew up here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I was homeschooled through most of uh, elementary and middle, and then ended up at a small private school, then graduated from Booker T. Washington. Um, from there, went to Missouri for four years and studied journalism, got my first job at a news station there. Uh, then went to South Dakota for one very cold winter, nine <laughs> months there, and I was uh, looking for a new job. Ended up in Virginia, lived there for about four years, then headed to across the country to California, spent a decade in San Francisco, and that's where I had my family. And then three years ago, this month, um, well, no, last month, we moved back to Tulsa because Tulsa is a great place to be. And so I'm here with my three children.
1: Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Uh, so, so we'll jump right into it. Can you tell us a little bit of jo- about just some of your, your formative experiences and memories of bigotry, discrimination, segregation, whatever, whatever it might have been?
2: Sure. I'll go first. Spread yep. the ice, right? All right, so um, back in high school, I was uh, I played basketball. I played college too, but uh, high school. Um, I was driving home from a basketball practice one night. We had a late practice, and uh, I was driving, and I had um, three black friends in the car with me, and I had one white friend in the car. Um, and on the way to drop off one of my friends to their homes, I got pulled over, um, and when I got pulled over, we got stopped, and the, the police officer came out, um, and he, he tells us to, uh, first of all, he radios in that he has three black males in the car. Uh, he doesn't mention my white friend, and he tells, um, tells me to shut the ignition off, and he asks me to step out the car, he tells my other three black friends to step out the car, and then he leaves my white friend in the car. He tells us to sit on the curb, um, and he runs our tag, well, runs my tag, uh, everything's good, and uh, then he, you know, he lets us go. Um, funny enough uh everything was okay but uh it was strange for me because um i had the school i went to was predominantly white uh the high school i went to was predominantly white um but i lived in the hood so i, I didn't live in that area um I, I lived in a predominantly very tough area <laughs> um, and i the schools that i went to prior to that um were rough as well um but my high school was, was different because uh, it was an all-magnet high school. Um, and so you had to have a, uh, have a certain GPA, certain test scores in order to get into the school itself. Um, and so once he found out what school we came from, and he knew that it was a predominantly white school, um, which he found out from my white friend that told him what school we went to and who his parents
3: were. And uh, he just let us go.
0: Hmm.
1: Clifton?
3: I grew up... Probably in the middle of legal segregation. So my world was not a lot about interaction with people that didn't look like me. Because at that point in time, part of you learning how to live black, and that's what a lot of people don't understand, is that your little kids, four and five years old, they don't know how to be white. They don't know how to be black. They don't know how to be Asian or Chinese or whatever. They just know how to get stuff and and have a great time. But for me, I enjoyed my life, but I can remember the shift when around six years old to seven, a shift of conversation took place, and it was how do you save your life? Even at six and seven years old, you're being taught how to live so that your life would not disturb a white person. So you had to learn this, and that's a lesson that you would learn for the rest of your life. And for the first 17 years of my life, uh, that, that, that was my life. Who to avoid, how to avoid, where to look, where not to look. Uh, and you simply assume that there were two worlds, and these worlds would never cross. Uh, that was my, my life for 17 years. Uh,
4: so my parents um, raised me not to be a victim. So they, they taught me that I would experience racism and bigotry but I could either let it hold me back or push through it. Um, so a lot of the, my experiences, I didn't allow to affect me that much, um, but I remember one that just really set me over the edge. Um, so I, like I said, I graduated from Emporia High School. I played basketball there for four years. So I was a student athlete while I was there. Um, didn't really get in a lot of trouble, not because I was a good kid, but because I was on a basketball team, right, so. <laughs> um, so I was one of only, only two players on my, on my senior, senior year that got a scholarship to play basketball. Um, so about a year later, I'm back in Emporia. I'm going to Emporia State University now. And my mom, who's also a teacher, uh, was doing some after-school tutoring at Emporia High School. So she asked me if I could come and help her. So I said, sure, why not? It's something I can put on my resume. So I get to the, to the school, I check in at the, at the office, I get a visitor's pass, and so now I'm walking to the library and I get stopped by one of the principals, and he asked me what I was doing, so I said, well, I'm here to help tutor in the library, and he told me that I needed to leave because gang members were not welcome in the school, and now I'm not the man that I am back then, so... <clears throat> I went off, they called the police on me, I left. But I think what hurt, what hurt me so bad about that particular one was, I mean, this was a principal that knew me for four years, you know, I went to that school, everybody knew me, they knew my parents. My parents are well respected in the community. My dad has a PhD, you know, he teaches at Emporia State University. And so, it's not like I was a stranger, but to me that was the first time like, wow, they, he actually equivalented gang membership with the color of my skin and it just set me over the edge.
5: So I think you can probably pick up a plethora of stories growing up. Um, I went to a predominantly black high school, Fred Douglas, in Oklahoma City. Um, lots of gangs, just if you wanted to get out of that situation of where you lived, you went to education. So I dove headfirst into education um, to get the top score. So. Back then, a 4.25 I thought would be like the greatest accomplishment. Um, And I kind of defined myself by grades to try and get scholarships because otherwise, we couldn't afford to send me to um, college. Well, I can remember my one teacher who I thought was always a champion for me. Um, And she was my Calc teacher. And as long as I stayed in my lane, I think I was okay. But I didn't know that at the time because every time I went, there was Ms. Cox, she was always champion for me. You know, Stephanie, you're president of National Honor Society. How did you get you know, your classmates to Dallas for $48 with airfare? We stayed at the W Hotel with you know, the Gallery Hotel to it. Um, but when it came to being valedictorian, and I was valedictorian, it was taken from me and I was stripped of all of my athletic credits. So my white classmate could be valedictorian, and they told me you got to learn how to take a one for the team and a B for a friend. And I didn't earn the B; I earned that 4.25, and I should be valedictorian. And because I advocated for myself, I was considered angry and disrespectful. Never said anything that was dis- I was raised to not be disrespectful. However, because I advocated, I was considered aggressive and. Um, told to just take it and just show up and shut up and then told that I would never amount to anything by that same teacher who had championed for me for four years of my high school career and I thought what do you do so I was not going to go to my graduation yet my mom was like your grandparents are here from New York you have to show up and I had to just sit there and watch somebody give my valedictorian speech and not only did they strip me of my athletic credits, it moved me to number three in the class instead of being number one.
0: So um, I grew up here in Tulsa and for those of you who remember way, way back, do you remember the old ice rink at the Williams Center? right? And it was great. And there were all those glass walls going up three stories and you could skate. Well, my sister and I, our father worked in the Williams Center. And we just were always there watching the ice skaters and we wanted to ice skate. So we got some ice skating lessons for Christmas. And then that rolled into like three years later and we were getting really good at ice skating. Um, and I remember once being on the ice and it was lovely, just soaring and sailing on the ice. And I was out there feeling free like a little kid should. And I looked over and my mom was like signaling us. Um, I guess I should mention here that I grew up in a biracial family. My father is white and my mother is black. And she was signaling us and she looked really upset. And I looked next to her and there was some guy in a jacket and I had no idea who he was and he was white. You know, she wanted us off the ice right now. And I was like, well, that's weird. So found my sister, we got off the ice, took off our ice skates, put them in our bag, threw them on our shoulder. And remember, I'd been skating at this point for like three years at this place twice a week and my father worked in the building. Um, And we get out there, and she's like, we got to go. And I was like, okay. And there was this guy still standing next to her who smelled really awful. And I didn't know what the smell was at the time, but I know now it was alcohol. So he escorts us out of the Williams Center in a really loud voice telling us, we got to get out of there. You got to get out of here. You can't be here. You have to go. Watches us in the parking lot get into our car and drive away. I was very confused. My mother was clearly a wreck. So we go home and, you know, she and dad close the door on their conversations and he goes back to the Williams Center um, to find this drunk security guard who had thrown our family out for being black. Um, and then every time I went back to skate, cause I took skating lessons twice a week and my sister and I were competitive. Um, I had to think about if that guy was gonna be there, if he was gonna be drunk on the job and if I was gonna be tr- mistreated because of it. You know, So it really, it wasn't a one-time thing. That became like, I go to a place where there's a person that I'm afraid of. And that was just as a little kid.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you guys. Um, so kind of along the same lines, if you, if you had an experience, have you ever experienced any of those same things in the church, in the local church? Have you experienced racism, bigotry, discrimination, prejudice? If so, please, please share those if you're willing.
5: Well, I'll share. Um... <laughs>
1: <laughs> I knew you would because you're not know,
5: I'm shy um, so our path to Christian Chapel um, pastor Chris asked this morning he goes Steph how long have you been here I'm like oh since Carrington was six um, it's actually significant how we came back to Christian Chapel I'll say back for, for Benny um, Carrington was at um, a school in Tulsa um, that was hooked to the church and when um, President Obama was running for election, you know, the schools always have like different um, mini elections, you know, fake elections. Sometimes it's with Daffy Duck and Road Runner. Um, and sometimes they use the real candidates. Here, they use the real candidates. Um, and Carrington and 12 other classmates cast their votes for President-elect Obama. And her classmates um, came out to tell their parents that, mom, can you believe that her mom and dad let her vote for him and that they're supporting him? And the parents came to me after school um, and berated me in front of my child about it. And if that wasn't bad enough, the Sunday um, after the election, our pastor was not slated to preach And he said, I'm going to preach anyway because you all have allowed your personal feelings to override your economic, you know, duty to this country. And I am just appalled and sickened that you would allow this man to be president. It was just, gosh, I couldn't, I could could put a word to it. But um, people start walking out of the church. I sat there because I wanted to hear exactly what he had to say. And then Benny and I took our child to the school and we pulled her out in mid-semester and we enrolled her into Holland Hall and that's how she got to Holland Hall. And we left the church because you weren't allowed to stay at the church if your child um, disenrolled in school. Um, Or you know, it was just so many things that was always political but I thought that was so bad and Carrington cried and was like, how come a black man can't be president? How come we can't cast our vote for a, a, a black president? What makes him evil? I said, he's not, but that's not a child, uh, something I thought I should be explaining to my six-year-old from my pastor who should be praying for our country and whatever leadership there was. But my poor child had to be accosted by friends who she thought were friends and their parents um, in their present at me watching to see what her mom would say. I thought that was just horrific. So that's actually how our path got to Christian Chapel.
1: It's, so just to be clear, that's not like you're not having to reach back to your childhood. This is 2007, no, this 2008, is, yes. in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yes. In South Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yes. As a Tulsa police officer, married to a professional man with people yeah.
5: who told you they loved you. Oh, yeah. I got interviewed to just, so you see me greeting here and smiling every day. I had to interview, um, and they checked my tithing record to see if I could qualify to shake your hand and greet you into the church. It was just shocking and amazing. I couldn't, couldn't believe yeah. it. To clarify, that was the other church, not Christian chapters. <laughs>
1: <laughs> just make sure we're on the same page there. Uh, yeah. Anybody else? I mean, in the church? Joanna?
0: Clearly, well, yeah. Anybody? You, okay. So I was going to say, when I was in high school, our family was part of a church plant. We were one of five charter families that started a church. Um, and that went on for a while, and it was good. But one Sunday, it was around Christmas time, the worship team got up. And, you know, as worship teams do, they did a great Christmas little service. Um, but one of the songs was a parody that two women sang. They were two women, I think, probably in their early 30s. They were both white and they were both single. And they sang this parody of I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas and saying I'm Dreaming of a White Christian. And what you said about early staying in your lane, mm-hmm. that's the thing that happened uh, to me there. Um, They got up and they sang, I'm Dreaming of a White Christian. And my first response was like, well, you're lost because my brother's black. And he's like the best guy I know, the best brother in the world. Um, But then the second thought that went through my mind was like, not only do I feel excluded here, but like this didn't just happen. They didn't just get up and sing this. They had worship practice. There are people on stage accompanying them. None of those people on stage during practice thought it was important enough to have an uncomfortable conversation in order to create an environment where I felt welcomed. There were people running lighting that were there practicing. You know, the worship leader was certainly there, but all of these people had chosen to stay silent and let something happen. And, you know, I think all of us have our blind spots. I, I know I've said stupid things, and people are like, shh. And I'm like, really? They're like, yeah. I'm a like, okay. Right, so like that happens, we all do something. But it was the fact that no one had said shh, can't do that. That was the part that really hurt me. It made it feel like a betrayal because it wasn't just someone doing something stupid because they have a blind spot. It was a collective decision to do nothing. Yeah, yeah.
3: Clifton? In my case, two families lost because of racism and bigotry. And keep in mind this was a long time ago but I haven't forgotten it, in the Mississippi Delta. We knew nothing about the Holy Spirit or anything like that at all. But in our community, there was an assembly of God's church. It was a young white pastor, who was 27. And whatever had happened, this young man had heard from God without question, just a great guy. And he broke the cultural barriers within our community. He asked my great grandfather if he could come and preach at his church. And uh, my, my grandpa said, sure, you can come. That's because in our world, the cemeteries were different and the churches were different. And I don't know how we would reconcile Revelation uh, and for the number that John saw, because that's not the number that we saw in Glen Allen. It was all divided. And Brother Overstreet was his name. And when my baby sister was ill, he came over to the house to pray for her. And then the church had their church had a, I guess, an office call or whatever one does, and they disbarred him because he was not supposed to go to a black home and pray for a child. And I guess I wrote an article about this in the Pentecostal Evangel many years ago. And from that article, I received letters from Brother Overstreet's children who are now adults uh, and out in Florida and in Georgia And they said, we never knew why we had to leave at midnight. Uh, And I never, and because no one ever told them, their parents never told them, the church says, you're no longer welcomed here. But in our life, had it not been for that one guy and his love of God, our family would have never heard about the power of God. Mm -hmm. So I guess Charles Dickens said it best. It was the best of times and the worst of times. But there were some best times there with that man. And his family.
4: Um, I have a, a quick one. When um, when my family moved from Ames, Iowa to Emporia, Kansas, we, in Ames, we attended an all-black church. Um, then we moved to Emporia, Kansas and found out there weren't any. <laughs> <coughs> so, <laughs> um, so, we started attending a, a, a church that was all-white. Um, and... I remember, I don't really remember this happening. I just remember my parents talking about this um, as I got older, because I think I was in fifth grade. Um, but there were several members of that church who told the pastor uh, that if we were going to go there, they were going to leave, so he needed to pick uh, between us or them. And the pastor told them, uh, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Uh, so... Um, I don't wanna focus on the, the negative of that story. I wanna focus on the positive. It, it meant a whole lot to us that our pastor stood up for us in that way. And we've made some relationships that continue to this day, people that we love dearly. In fact, the church that my parents go to now, um, the pastor there was my youth pastor at that church. And so we've, we've got a brother for life there and he's been doing some great work in Topeka in terms of rec- uh, racial reconciliation, so... Um, so, that to me, that's a story of, of redemption, that, you know, that pastor was faced with a decision to draw a line in the sand right there, and, and he did the right thing.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I do want to say, Dr. and Mr., Mrs. Terrell are here today joining us, Sean's mom and dad. Uh, so glad that you guys can make it down. I think there was a, a grandson birthday yesterday that might be the real reason, but we're going to pretend you came to hang out with us, so, even though we all know, yeah. Um, if, if you could say, or or let's, let's go a different direction. How, how have you seen God change hearts and maybe in your relationships in, in this church culture and other church culture, how have you seen the work of the Holy Spirit come and start to tear down those walls that our culture has created, that sin has created?
0: I would say through relationship and sometimes the relationships you don't choose So, um, my parents were interracially married. My older brother is interracially married. His wife, Lorna, they attend here, she's Mm -hmm. white. My sister is interracially married. She married a white man. My marriage was interracial. I had also married a white man. Um, And within that group of what, four marriages, there's someone somewhere in the extended family who had some ideas probably about different sides. Mm -hmm. Um, But you know, once you are invested in the same thing, which is generally grandkids, like, those things fall apart, hmm. you know? So I've seen over time that, like, when people start to spend time with one another and they realize that they do care about people who look different than them and maybe ideas they had earlier aren't ideas they have anymore. But I think it takes, it takes relationship, time, and the work of forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Because then on the other side, if you don't let go, you just can't move forward. Mm-hmm. You know, so I would say I've seen that through relationship, time, and forgiveness, and it really does take all three.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's good.
0: I
3: think when, you know, breaking bread is very important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, when people can eat together, it is, I almost call that a, ser- a sermon in action. Yeah. And, and I know there are people here in, in Christian Chapel that we used to travel together during the summers when I had to work in Mississippi. Marilyn and Ed Gutman, uh, let's see, Miss Heffley and Mr. Heffley and others, we'd load up in our van and we'd head to Natchez, Mississippi for the big International Literary Festival. But uh, we had to eat together and we had to talk together. And and, and that is a hard thing to do sometimes because what am I going to talk about? And and oftentimes, there's so much we have in common that we've never given ourselves the opportunity to explore that. And and I think this is why Jesus told his disciples, it is needful that I go through Samaria, because he had to leave something on record to show us that in order to make this thing work, intentionality is very important. I have to be intentional about my walk with Christ and intentional that I want my life to be inclusive of others, not just myself. And I, and I think this is what Christ's message was to his guys because they had all grown up in that same culture. And just because that's the culture that you were born in, that doesn't mean that's the culture that God has chosen for you.
1: It's good. It's good.
3: Um, I, I, would, uh, I would also want to,
2: almost piggyback off of what Clifton is saying, <clears throat> and just kind of provide a difference between um, diversity and um, inclusion. Um, diversity can, can mean, yeah, we have a, a bunch of different um, ethnicities here, or races here, or genders um, in one church. Um, inclusivity, uh, on the other hand, means um, active part, active leadership um, of different race, ethnicity, gender. Um, and so when you look at the church, for example, and uh, you see a formerly all-white staff at Christian Chapel hire a young black man, a part of a leadership staff, I think that that is huge when it comes to wanting to see uh, diversity and in- inclusivity um, as a whole. So. I think that I experience God there um, because the truth is is that I, I've, I've faced many conversations with friends that I've had um, that no longer are Christians that were black that would say, hey, you're in a white man's religion. Um, Christianity is a white man's religion. It's, it's European, it's Anglo, and I have to fight with these men, not physically fight, but like have verbal disagreements with them to let them know that listen christianity is is not about race at all and that's what makes christianity what it is um the fact that uh jesus comes and decides that he wants uh, the holy spirit to come in and 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 give you power to witness to all parts of the earth and and everybody's included in that um whether you're black white brown whatever skin color you are wherever you're from um, and then you find that um, from Jesus' time, and now to see it uh, happen here for me, uh, I think that uh, I'm really grateful for that. Mm-hmm. So um, that's uh, something good that I've experienced.
1: Yeah, Amen. that's awesome. That's awesome. Anybody else? Any signs of, of hope you've seen, change in the, in the church, how God's working?
5: Mm-hmm. So I think just... Um, Daily walking is what I've seen. I've seen an outpouring over the last several years um, with just having friendships and building friendships um, and everyone coming together. So this week, um, if you're on my Facebook page, you'll you'll, you'll see them. But I had a, a dear friend and colleague um, reach out and support my business. Um, n- nothing premeditated about it, had no idea until he asked and said, hey, I wrote this up. Can I post this? And I thought, if you didn't know him, you would think he was doing it because of the recent unrest. But if you know him, you'll know that just as um, Cliff said, he's been intentional with making friendships and connections and relationships to um, reach out way prior to COVID-19 and the recent protests um, and injustices. So I think those are the things I'm seeing from Christian brothers and sisters that are reaching out and just being genuine um, and not walking on eggshells to have a conversation. I love that. I love that Sarah and I can just sit there and talk and and chit chat and and sisterhood. And that means the world to me um, because we are frail as humans and we're frail as Christians and we're going to misstep and we're gonna fail Feel the Lord at times, but to me, what I see with my Christian brothers and sisters is that clean slate God has given us to be friends intentionally and to learn and know each other beyond the colors of our skin. And I'm just blessed for that.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Can Can I just say something yeah, real go ahead.
5: quick? Um,
2: Sorry for talking again, but uh, just to go beyond, um, to go beyond. When it comes to finding hope, I, I think that a lot of us have kind of come to a point where we're trying to find the answer and um, s- like sociology or or some ways of, you know, with people. However, the true answer is not through that. The true answer is through theology, through Jesus, right, through finding Jesus Christ. Um, hopefully, I don't offend anybody by saying this, but... To, to many people's surprise, Jesus wasn't Anglo-white. Jesus, <laughs> right, nor was he black, right? But Jesus was a Middle Eastern Jewish curly-head man um, that, <laughs> that uh, you know, that came from somewhere that decided that, hey, I'm going to come to the world that everybody would have a chance at eternal life. So
3: I think mm-hmm. that's where hope truly lies. You know, there's one other thing, too. The relationships that you build, and if you ever make a mistake and embrace people wholeheartedly, they become family. And uh, there's a family here, the Decker family. You know, Doug is just like my own child. And that's the way it should be. Amen. That's
1: awesome.
0: I want to echo on this. Um, One of the questions you'd written down that I'd seen was, have you made any sacrifices to, I don't know if I'm getting it right, to to have diversity? And when I saw that, I was like, you know, it's never felt like a sacrifice to me. I have never been like, I'm going to give up. Like, to me, it's always been a blessing. So when I moved to San Francisco, I was seven months pregnant And I walk into church, you know, like in Tulsa, Columbia, you walk into church and everyone's white. And in San Francisco, you walk into church and everyone's Asian. And it's like, I'm still the only black person. Like, what's going on? So, but here I am, seven months pregnant. And I walked into a home group and there was a Chinese woman and her husband was Taiwanese. And she was seven months pregnant. And I was like, hey, we're both pregnant. And nobody else here is pregnant. Nobody here gets married. Like, we're going to be the only women with children in downtown San Francisco. We should be friends, you know. Um, And it was... It, this community group, there were basically these four Asian women that adopted me as a little sister. And I was exposed to a whole different culture um, while I was having children, which was amazing. And like at the end of it, I was like, I've got to find myself an Asian mom. Like these Asian moms are wonderful. because like, they come and live with you for 30 days. They cook all your meals. And I was invited to everything because I was there without a mom. And, and it was just I learned so much from these women, um, and they are watching today because I told them that I would be doing this, and they were all so excited, and they are like, we want to hear more about your experience. And so it was weird stepping in, like I didn't know anything about Asian culture, and there's a lot of differences, um, but they accepted me, I stepped in, I, I wanted to learn, I needed people in my life, I didn't know anyone in San Francisco. And then walking away, I just thought, like, I'm so glad I had that experience. You know, I, I love these women now, and what they did for me was amazing. And now I find myself, like, in Costco, and I see an Asian family. And, like, I start smiling and waving, and they kind of look at me, and I'm like, ah, like, <laughs> I get it. I don't look like you, but you look like the people that I love, and I just kind of love you because you look that way, you know. But, yeah, yeah. it's always been a blessing, <laughs> always.
1: That's great. If, if you, um, kind of winding down here, if, if you could... Tell us one thing. I mean, the people of Christian Chapel, your, your friends that maybe are watching online, uh, if you could leave us with some sort of, hey, here's something you could do. Here's an encouragement. Here's a path to, to pursue. Just what, what do you feel like God has put in your heart to
4: say to us today? <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. Um, man, uh, over the last, you know, month or so, I've, you know, with just what's been going on um a lot of old wounds have just been retorn in my life and I just want to say I've had a lot of people um just my friends people in this church that have just called me texted me reached out to me um to check on me and just let me know that they're with me and I I really appreciate that um you know I wear glasses obviously um and so Andy if I were to change glasses with you um you would probably tell me that I'm blind that uh I can't see Um, but I I don't think you would say that because my prescription isn't the same as yours that I'm blind, right? So we recognize that, you know, I have to have this specific prescription to see the world, and, you know, there are things in my life that I see through my lens that you may not see, Um, things that I see that hurt me that may not hurt you, or that affect me that may not affect you, and so that's fine, Um, but... You know, I, I think a step forward would be to say, I recognize that I don't have the same perspective as you, um, but that doesn't mean that your perspective isn't valid. Um, I recognize that you see the world differently than me, and that's okay, and just embrace that. Um, you know, at, at the heart of God, he's a missional God, and, you know, he sent his son, he could have sent him, you know, three hours before the cross, but instead, instead Jesus spent 33 years on this earth living, breathing Embracing culture, you know, walking with the disciples, walking with people, being tempted, you know he experienced all of that, and then the Bible says that he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, and so if 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 the God of this universe can call me and you his brother, then man, what it, why would we allow the enemy to continue to divide us? right the The work has already been done, you know. It's on the cross. Everything that divided us was nailed to the cross. Jesus died for it, and so from now on, you know our responsibility is to live in that victory and walk in
5: it. I think the one thing I would say is be uncomfortable um, and stay uncomfortable, um, and that's okay to be uncomfortable. Um, and what I would say is stay in the word and just go to that. When you don't have the words to say, um, go to God's word. Um, And remember that, you know, God ate with the tax collectors who were below or below. God ate with the Romans, you know, who took money from their own, you know, um, and give to the Jews. You know, God ate with those who, in those times, they thought were below sinners. But in that, God said, I'm there with them hearing what they have to say. So those who, who think differently than you, because if everybody you eat with and spend time with looks like you and acts like you, then something's wrong with you. Um, we got to step out of our comfort zones and be uncomfortable with some of the things so we can learn some of the things we need to. And, and I say we, because I mean, we need to. Um, and, those are when you're going to start to grow because God is one who will say, I need to eat with them and talk with them because they need me, not the whole. Um, and so those who are being bigots, being racist, he, we need to hear them so we can, one, be educated ourselves, and two, kind of start to have the conversations that need to be had and the understandings that need to be had um, but then that's when we move to the forgiveness, because I can say anything, but if I don't forgive myself for things I've said, or if people who are being racist don't forgive themselves, it starts with, on the inside with those forgivenesses, and it starts with us starting to build that forgiveness, because God has forgiven us for everything. He's, he's hung, bled, and died for everything that is already done, and, and whatever's in your heart, he already knows it. But God is, is one of those who will reach right down in your heart and clean it right back up. So I'm telling you when I say we're a frail human, we are frail. But God is a, is, a, is a good God, and he's a forgiving God, and he's a merciful God. And so if we just reach in and do those things that make us uncomfortable to start opening ourselves and being open and not judging somebody because they haven't been fighting a good fight but being open ourselves to teachable moments and walking together as brothers and sisters, that's when we start to heal.
0: Can I throw in one thing? Here's a practical tip on how to be uncomfortable. Start talking with your children about race. This is something that families of color have to do for safety reasons. We have to talk about our children, our children how they fit in and the game they're in. Everybody's in this game, everybody. You didn't choose it, but we're all in it. And you have to think about where you are and what kind of player you are And I say that to me not like, am I a good player or a bad player, but just where do you fit in? So like the conversation I have with my children about race is going to be different than Stephanie's child because my children all have very light skin and nobody knows they're black or brown until I show up. So I have to talk to them about what it means when you find out that someone's willing to be your friend, but not after they see your mom. Or they're not willing to be your friend until they see your mom, because that happens too. This conversation Stephanie has with her daughter is gonna be different. And the conversations each of you have with your children are also gonna be different. But this is something we can all relate to. None of us in here would be like, we don't talk about sexuality in our family. Like that would be a dangerous thing if we did not talk to our children about their sexuality. and We did not give them the proper boundaries and the proper protocols. And, and we start thinking about this very early. You know, with my four or five year old, we talked about modesty. And I knew this was building to something they were gonna have later it would be dangerous for us to refuse to talk about our children's sexuality with them. In the same way, it is a disservice to them if we do not talk about their race with them. People who have to do it for safety reasons or emotional safety reasons know we need to do this. But if those aren't pressing, it can seem less important. But I just want to urge you, it's not. It's very important um, for your child's development. I remember my earliest memory dealing with race. I was like four years old, And I was at McDonald's and I was looking for my dad and I was like, not his pants, not his pants. There's my dad. And I I grabbed his leg and I looked up and I was like, this is not my dad. This is just some white dude. (laughs) And all of a sudden at that, like that moment, I realized my dad's a white dude. It had not occurred to me before. And I all of a sudden understood my family has different races in it. And I just used race to diminish someone. And I did not have the language to express what had just gone on but I felt every feeling of it. And so your children may not have the language to express the world that they're taking in, but they are understanding it emotionally and having reactions to it. All right? So, yeah. I'm done. Thank you,
4: <laughs> um,
2: Yeah, so I guess I keep saying the weird hard stuff, but um, two things, right? So two things that are absolutely necessary, right? So if you truly desire that this is something that you feel like you, you really we want to together overcome. Two things, acknowledgement and empathy. Acknowledgement and empathy, right? Um, and so the truth is is that racism does exist, so acknowledgement of that, right? Um, understanding that, okay, even if you yourself aren't a racist, that racism does exist. Acknowledging the fact. That is a fact. That is truth. It's existed for a long time, Jews and Gentiles, and it's still existing, Right? Secondly, empathy. Trying to put yourself into position to understand what somebody else is feeling even if you yourself have never felt that way before. So yeah, I'm gonna have dinner with you, break bread with you so I can understand what you're feeling. It's difficult to say you feel bad for what's going on if you don't ever know, you never understand. To suffer with Christ is to really know him. You know Christ through the sufferings that you go through as a Christian. And to suffer with your brothers and sisters, even if you don't physically suffer, is to really know your brothers and sisters in Christ. So for example, you have a man that goes into a church and shoots nine people and gets taken to Burger King, right? And then I have a friend in South Florida that goes to a very big church and on his way to a church service, he's a drummer at a church, gets stopped at a traffic stop, and gets shot and killed on his way to church. Two different, completely different ways that situations are handled with two completely different type of people with two completely different type of hearts, but they are treated based on their skin, you know, the complexion of their skin. So the fact is, is that it's real, it does exist, but how can I feel what my brothers and sisters are feeling? And so we have to be able to put ourselves in a position where we are sympathetic and empathetic of what our brothers and sisters are feeling.
4: Absolutely. Can I add add a little bit to that? Um, What was the first one? Sympathetic and empathetic. Acknowledgement acknowledgement and and empathy. And then I would add identity. Um, So even though me and Kareem may have the same similar skin complexion. We come from two different cultures. Like I grew up in Kansas, there's no water. It's just grass (laughs) and wheat. And so I don't eat a lot of seafood. I don't eat a lot of Caribbean stuff, you know, and and when Kareem came, I was like, bro, jerk chicken. Show me how, I've never had jerk chicken. So so Kareem came over, he made jerk chicken. It was the bomb, okay? (laughs) Y'all, I spent like six hours watching YouTube videos on how to make jerk chicken. <laughs> because, because next time he comes, it's my turn. I'm making jerk chicken. And mom, I hope I do, I do it justice. But, you know, I want to embrace his identity. And when I embrace his identity, we become one. And so, man, I, it doesn't matter if you're know, white, black, Asian, whatever. If you've got somebody that you want to invite into your life, you're gonna have to embrace their identity. Mm
1: -hmm. Clifton?
3: My last words are, we have the capacity to love. If we did not have that capacity, God would not have asked us to do so. But once we open up the door to that capacity, we don't diminish who we are, we increase who we are. Because now we understand the kinship and the relationships And all of those things are not just for our day and our time, but it's for all times to come. When we embrace that, understand it, and discover, we may be discovering this for the rest of our lives. That's okay, because there's a scripture in the Bible that gives us an out. He said, Beloved, it does not yet appear how we should be. But I know that when we see him, we will see him as he is, and he will see us likewise. So at some point, we're going to be there. John's revelation vision will be real. The sad part is we can start that vision now and get the benefits of doing so.
4: Amen.
1: Amen. Amen. Thank you all. I, um, I read a, a short little article this week that said, um, basically, watch how the, the white evangelical world plays out the events of the last couple weeks and says there's a, a playbook. You make a statement, you have a conversation, you get patted on the back, and you don't change. And so I want to challenge each of us of, you know, to, to this point, we followed the playbook. Made a statement, had a conversation, you might get patted on the back. But if there's no lasting change, then we've just kind of all wasted our time this morning. Uh, If your friendships don't change, if your relationships don't change, if you, if you can't put yourself in a position to let someone with a different skin color, different background than you serve, not just as a friend, but as a a mentor, as a guide, as somebody you go to, uh, like, I, I, I just, I don't want you to leave today thinking like there is, there's not a token on this stage this morning. These are men and women that I respect deeply who have challenged and changed my heart and my view. Uh, I know many of you have friendships with them. You've had the same conversations. And, and I know they represent so many others in our church and our community who are willing to have those, those conversations. And so let's not, let's not kind of end with the, hey, pat on the back, move forward. Clifton and I were talking this morning in my office. And um, I, I always love Clifton's historical perspective because he's just... He's seen a lot more than I have, uh, than all of us have. And I mean that in the most complimentary way possible. <laughs> but he, even he, he was saying this morning, this, this season, this moment feels different. And we we're talking about marches in Germany that are, that are happening and, and things that are going on all over our world. Um, and so, you know, my, my prayer, and I think the prayer of everyone here is that that moment is not wasted. Uh, but that there's real and lasting progress and peace that we continue to move towards. And so I'm going to, Clifton, I'm going to ask you as kind of as our our father, our, our elder statesman, if you will pray those prayers of just change and progress and peace and whatever else God puts on your heart. Jesus,
3: we thank you for everything that you've done for us and the ability that you've given each one of us to help build your kingdom because it is your kingdom in this world that the world will see and they will know us by our love. Only we can do that. And we ask your help in making that happen. Let Christian Chapel be a light in the city of Tulsa where when a person wants to know where is the church where God lives, we can say we know exactly where it is. It's right off 77th Street. That's our home. Bless us, Lord and all of our families. In your name we pray and ask. Amen.
1: Amen.
0: Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christian Chapel. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com.